Today is Friday, February 24th, 2023, and this is the Quick Start Podcast from CBN News. I'm Billy Hollowell, and I'm joined by Trey Goins-Phillips. How's it going today, Trey? Uh, it's good. It's good. I, we're what, Friday. We're already to Friday. The days kind of run together, right? Like when we've been taping the podcast and just doing the work grind, it's like, wait, is it already... It's already right. weekend time, so like, how are we here? here we are. How did this happen? How did this happen? We don't have Dan with us today. It's just you and I holding I down the fort here on the show. Uh, but we're going to be talking about a whole bunch of, of great stories. We've got this former NFL star who had really an incredible near-death experience. Um, and I say incredible because he overcame it and is going to be fine. You're going to be talking about that. Um, But before we get to that, this show is all about news from a Christian perspective. You can subscribe to the podcast, give us a rating. You know, we always say share it with a friend. And you can email us, by the way, if you've got thoughts or feelings or ideas, quickstartpodcast at cbn.org. You can also head over to cbn.com slash quickstartpodcast. Uh, But Trey, we're going to get into our main thing later on, too, which is actually another really intriguing topic. It's about Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. We'll get into what all of that means. But before we do that, we have the news in 90 seconds. So let's just start here with these big developments that have been going on in the Nagorno-Karabakh situation. If you'll recall, Nagorno-Karabakh is a small landlocked region. It's between Armenia and Azerbaijan. And in this scenario, Azerbaijan has been blocking the only roadway into or out of the area for months now. But this week, there were a number of high-profile moves around this scenario. The UN's highest court ordered Azerbaijan to actually unblock that road, that corridor, and to allow free movement in and out. We have no idea what will happen there, but it's a story that we will continue to monitor to see how Azerbaijan reacts to that court hearing. We also have the Biden administration reportedly considering declaring a public health emergency on abortion. Now, this would be done to expand nationwide access to the procedure. The goal is obviously an effort to help those seeking abortion get past state laws that may be restricting it. But we have Republicans in Washington who are maneuvering to block that potential plan by the Biden administration to increase that abortion access. We have Representative August Flunger. He's a Republican from Texas, and he has proposed an amendment to the National Emergencies Act that would actually stop the Biden administration from using that law to promote abortion or to bypass any of those restrictions. We'll continue to monitor that story to see where it goes. And finally, if you thought the Islamic State terror group had gone away, you need to think again. Despite military defeat in Syria and Iraq, ISIS has thousands of fighters still and 25 affiliate groups around the world. And now Western intelligence agencies are actually bracing for terror attacks. Um, And there's been quite a bit of activity. Uh, The group has called for revenge against Christians. They're angry after a Danish activist publicly burned a Quran in Sweden last month. And that sparked all sorts of protests that erupted throughout the Islamic world. So we'll continue to monitor that story as well. Those are just some of today's headlines. You can check out those stories and more at CBNNews.com. So, Trey, what do you make of this Biden administration report that they're considering declaring this public health emergency on abortion? Well, I mean, okay, let's set aside the the fact that it's abortion, obviously, and and where Christians fall on this issue or should fall on this issue about life and the conception of life and all of that. Set that aside for a second. 
it's uncomfortable to me, the politicians on both sides of the aisle, by the way, who are quick and ready to jump on anything and make anything a national emergency. It's no wonder that people don't trust our institutions because everything now since 2020, it seems, uh, even before that, uh, can, well, we can declare a national emergency because it gives them, it, it eliminates rules for the federal government, right? So they can go ahead and do whatever they want to uh, unilaterally, not always, but in some in some senses. And then a lot of times we never see those uh, emergencies go away. They just kind of stay there and everybody moves on and they continue to take advantage uh, of, of the special powers that are given to them. So uh, the fact that now we have a president who might be doing that with abortion should scare all of us, right? Because this, if we believe these are human lives, which we do, uh, and and you're 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 having an administration come in who's declaring unilaterally this is what we believe, uh, and then acting on that, that's concerning. Yeah, well, you're superseding the rights of the people because let's say people in a specific state. I live in New York, and the people here are not going to vote for pro-life people. They're just not going to. But if they're not happy with pro-life provisions, they will then vote people out through the electoral process, right? Or if they do want pro-life provisions in their state, they will vote people in. And what this does, trying to purportedly get around these restrictions, it's actually rigging the system, right? I mean, you're you're taking yeah. tools that should not be used for these purposes, and you're getting around the fact that people are going to make decisions for who they want to be in power, and they're going to respond and react to the laws that are put in place. And so you're absolutely right. To me, the most terrifying thing about this, it doesn't matter which party is doing it, is that it's it's only a tool that is used if they do push this through, right? This is a report. We don't know that that's going to happen, um, but it's only a tool that you use because you don't like the way that the system we have in place is operating. And that to me is very troubling. Well, it's also ironic too, isn't it? That um, the left has consistently said for, for the entire four-year period that Trump was in office, that the Republicans were authoritarian, they're totalitarian, they're trying to usurp uh, the the will of the people by implementing all of this stuff. And then in walks 2020 in the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, and it was the left that was pushing for a lot of these unilateral decisions that shut down culture and society. Uh, and now it's the left again that's like, well, we don't like the way some states are going to your point uh, when it comes to abortion we have the moral high ground that they believe in their mind when it comes to abortion. So we're going to decide what's best for all of the country. To me, these two things, COVID-19 and um, and the response to, to abortion restrictions being put in place, that smacks more of authoritarianism uh, than maybe some of the things that Republicans had been trying to do. I don't know. Maybe I'm just a little bit too jaded in this culture, but well, I, I no, know. I mean, I, this particular thing that we're talking about, declaring a state of emergency to potentially try to get around state laws that are being put in place after a, a you know, the Supreme Court, right, legally passed something, right? You're trying to get around the way our system works. It's the same conversation with packing the court and all these other things. Right. You know, we're not happy. Now, of course, packing the court is not illegal. It's something that can be done, but it's not the way that we've traditionally operated since the 1800s. So, you know, we're looking to do all these other things because we're not getting our way. And when I say we, I mean, you know, in this case, the Biden administration, I just think it's a very slippery slope and we continue to slide down it into the abyss without caring about what comes next, right? You do this, yeah. if this goes through, what's the next emergency going to be about, right? I mean, yeah. guns, I don't know. 
Who knows? Yeah, I think that the takeaway here for us as Christians is to be informed, right? To, to understand what's going on, because we have a responsibility, a duty, I think, to vote. So we need to be active in, in voting and active in our our democratic republic and, and getting the right people in office. And, and by right people, I don't mean one party or another. I mean people who will advance the morals that we know to be true based on what we believe in scripture. And then, of course, to realize that as Christians, we believe in a God who rises above all of this politics and you know, his authority far surpasses any of the stuff that we go through. It doesn't mean that it doesn't matter, but it does mean uh, that we should be prayerful and we should take these things to him because he's ultimately in control. Absolutely. And that goes to be the case for for really everything. And I just wanted to throw in one last note here about the ISIS story, because I think it it is evidence of, you know, and you know this and I know this, we move on as a culture so quickly from stories, right? You know, ISIS obviously didn't go away, but yet if it wasn't in the headlines, people weren't talking about it. And so for that to reemerge, I think it probably creates some consternation or worry within people. Uh, But this is still a very real threat. And we live in a world in which persecution at the hands of ISIS and other groups is um, a very real problem for people all over the globe. So I just wanted to highlight that, you know, just, you know, praying um, against ISIS and obviously praying for those afflicted by that group, because again, this is something that is still going on in our world. Yeah, 100%. It's not something that's going to go away. And uh, as believers, it's important to remember that when one part of the body hurts, the entire body hurts. Uh, So these are our brothers and sisters. They're part of our community, even if they live in a different country, speak a different language and walk different walks of life culturally, they're still part of our body. Uh, So we have a duty as Christians to be praying for and lifting them up and praying that the Lord will still move in the midst of of the, the horror that they're facing. Now, Trey, that brings us to our focus story here. Tell us a little bit about this NFL player who uh, is pointing to Jesus after his harrowing rescue. What happened? Yes, this is a, an awesome story, not just because of, of the rescue. Obviously, the, the two kids are, are doing well. He was able to successfully rescue his kids. That's obviously the, the best part there. But the fact that he's continuing to use the platform that he's getting, uh, Peyton Hillis, he's a former running back in the NFL. The fact that he's using his platform to point people to Christ and, and, and is you know highlighting the fact that it was his faith that really motivated him to do what he did on top of obviously being a father and wanting to, to care for his children. I think that's just incredible. Anytime a, a celebrity or a famous person uh, is using their clout to point people to the Lord. So uh, as you said, uh, Billy, he rescued his kids in January. Uh, they were at the beach, started drowning the two kids. He ran into the water. He rescued them. He's 36 years old. He was taken to the hospital at that point in critical condition after pulling his two kids out of the ocean. Uh, the incident, according to ESPN, involved him, his two children, like I said, and one other adult. Uh, in a statement though released this week, Hillis said people's prayers for him and his children have, quote, made all the difference, uh, describing the entire ordeal as very traumatic. Uh, he said his whole family was, of course, reeling after it, and, and they were really relying not only on their own faith and their own prayers, but the prayers of other people too. Uh, then he directly turned to the Lord in a statement. Uh, he said, I did want to come on here and show my appreciation for everyone who helped save my life and for all the prayers and love and support. This is a statement he posted uh, to his uh, Twitter account. He said, I left the hospital with no worries and concerns and should make a 100% recovery. And this is the most, uh, I think, faith-centric part of his statement. He said, I'm a very lucky and blessed man. Yahweh has really blessed me and I'm very thankful. So just an awesome display of faith, I think, really. 
Yeah, I mean, what do you make of that? I, I love getting a chance to see when somebody goes through something incredibly difficult and they're people of faith that they turn around and they credit God for it. What What were you sort of thinking as you encountered that part of the story? Yeah, you know, it's not often that you see, it's kind of like when people say that they're a person of faith or they believe in God. Uh, and they're obviously, I'm grateful for anybody who says something like that. But when it's really general, you don't really know like, okay, do you, are, are we believing in the same God? But when it, it's something that's so pointed uh, and it's repeated, right? This is something that Hillis has done over and over and over again. There's consistency over his uh, over his public life. And even his philanthropy and the way that he works charitably with other people and organizations, there's evidence of faith. So it's something that seems really genuine. So I think that's encouraging. It's, it's kind of like when, when somebody says Jesus in a movie, you hear like, oh, wow, nobody ever says Jesus in the movie, they'll they'll say God or you know a higher power. But when they use Jesus, it's like, oh, so this is somebody who actually who actually probably believes what I believe. So it's encouraging to see somebody with a platform, like I said earlier, kind of saying something that resonates with so many believers because we know it's true. And it's encouraging when when somebody who has influence publicly is saying it and hopefully pointing other people to, hey, well, this is what he said, and this is the traumatic experience he went through. Uh, and he still is clinging to hope. Maybe there's something there that I should explore. Yeah, no, I think I think that's so true. And it didn't seem like anybody, you know, when you when you read the stories about what he went through, you know, throughout that entire process from when it happened to now his healing, nobody seemed surprised that he was the type of guy that was going to go out there. And of course, anybody's going to do that for their kids, but be so sacrificial, right? Everybody seemed to see him as this person who, yeah, naturally he would risk his life, you know, for his children, for anybody else. And I thought it was kind of cool to see those because that's a, that's a Christian value too, obviously, right? Yeah. Being willing to to risk your life. Again, anyone, anybody is going to do that for their kids, but it's just a really cool ending to what could have been a really terrible story. Well, yeah. And I think that's, what's really incredible is that privately he lives the same way that he lives publicly, uh, which is, seems to be something that we're missing in our culture, right? Is the integrity factor. It's something that a lot of us, I think, struggle with at different times and in different phases of life. So for someone like him to be privately who he is publicly uh, is really cool. One of the parents actually that goes has a kid at the school that his kids go to, Shiloh Christian School in Springdale. Uh, she said, I was not surprised at all, to your point, uh, Billy, that he did what he did. He said, this is, she said, this is just something that fits perfectly in line with the character of this former NFL player at one of the coaches at the youth football team, which Hillis's son, uh, Ori, actually plays on. He said, one of the great things about being a body of believers is a relationship and community. And it's about not only being here to pray for people, but it's also here. It's also being here to support them through times like this. So it's cool that his Christian community locally there in Arkansas, in Springdale, Arkansas, has come together since the beginning of this. This was in January when this coach said this, and they've been praying for him, holding services, and at services they've been bringing him up uh, and giving updates to the community, the school community and the church community, I'm sure there too. So it's cool to see a, a body of believers coming together and really doing what we're called to do as Christians, right? Is to be the body of Christ and to help uh, other people help help people through different circumstances and mourn with them and grieve with them, like scripture says, but also rejoice with them. And they're at the point now where I think a lot of them are rejoicing because we they weren't sure what was going to happen, right? He was in critical condition at the beginning of this. His kids are safe and now he's expected to make a full recovery. So it's just a, a cool story all the way around. 
Yeah. Talk about an answer to prayer. A hundred percent for sure. Recovery. Really great story. Now that brings us to our main thing for the day. Now our main thing today, it's CBN's John Stolness sitting down with Jake Denton, who's a research associate at the Tech Policy Center for the Heritage Foundation. And they're talking about the Supreme Court hearing surrounding Section 220. And this is going on this week. And it really could have this case a very big impact on the future of the internet. Here's today's main thing. Can you just briefly explain to people what is Section 230? We hear a lot about it. I know it's not very long, but it's and it's been around for forever. What are we fighting about here in, in the Supreme Court? Yeah, so the Section 230 comes from the Communications Decency Act of 1996, and it essentially provides uh, internet providers with protections over the types of content that are posted on their platform. So essentially what this looks like in modern day is that, you know, if an individual were to post a video onto YouTube that violated the law or was otherwise, uh, you know, offensive or illegal, uh, they couldn't be, the internet provider couldn't be sued for that, the the service provider. So whether that be a YouTube, a Facebook, um, but the individual could be. And so really the battle here is over um, kind of the evolution of the internet, the ways in which these platforms and these services have evolved, and whether or not Section 230 really still applies and you know the way it was written today um, to the new technologies and the new uh, new platforms that we're working mm-hmm. with. The Gonzalez family, uh, the family of the woman who was killed by these terrorists, uh, their lawyers say that applying Section 230 to algorithmic recommendations incentivizes promoting harmful content, and that's why this is gone all the way up to the Supreme Court and that it denies victims an opportunity to get compensation or to get redress when they are harmed if they feel like people were radicalized by things they saw on these platforms. So let's say SCOTUS sides with the Gonzalez family and rules against Google. What would that do to YouTube and other platforms that utilize algorithms to promote content? Yeah, so YouTube's uh, kind of a unique case in that, you know, it is the premier video service online. And really the reason that is, is because of all of the amounts of data that they collect across their stack, whether that be search, Gmail, all those cookies, if you're familiar, uh, that feed into kind of the comprehensive user data profile. And that allows them to recommend micro-targeted videos. So in the instance of this case, Uh, The family is alleging that because of the data that that Google has collected on these ISIS terrorists, they delivered them radicalization content, videos that would otherwise motivate content of violence and extremism. And so really what this is going to do, if they strip this immunity from them, it's going to force Google and other social media providers to actually police harmful types of content and not just focus on the conservative content that they've been basically deplatforming up till now. Um, So equal application of content moderation or really just uh, focusing on things that are actually harmful rather than political speech. How have tech companies used Section 230 over the years, Mark? Yeah, so Section 230 has really been evoked across all sorts of cases because the courts have given them tech companies, broad immunity with Section 230. Really, they've interpreted the the original text of the law to be far more encompassing than what it was originally intended to be. And I think it's best seen through the algorithm issue. If you really look at what the algorithms provide, there is no mention of that in the original Section 230 text, but we imply uh, the protections across that issue. And so 
Section 230 has been a crutch for these companies to avoid any liability. And you see that in instances where, you know, maybe a young girl has consumed content that motivates her towards uh, an eating disorder or maybe even suicide. And the tech companies come about and they say, no, due to Section 230 and our protections, well, you know, you cannot sue us. You cannot take any sort of civil action. And so it really has deviated far off course of what was initially intended and is now just kind of broad protection for them that has real world consequences. So let's say that Section 230 gets changed in some way and who knows how, how what that could look like. It wouldn't likely outlaw the use of algorithms, though, right? I mean, I suppose it would just it would make it more cumbersome for these platforms to police the content that appears on their websites. Is, is that kind of the direction we see this going? That's correct. This would certainly not outlaw the use of algorithms, but what it would do is it would eliminate their ability to use the algorithm as a shield to, you know, defer any sort of claim as, you know, oh, it was just an algorithm, right? This is what we see often now is that anytime there is um, an allegation of political bias, these tech companies come forward and say it's just the bias getting rid of hate speech or, you know, toxic posts, when in reality, it is an extension of their internal policies. And so this is almost a recalibration moment for them. This is something that will force them into actually policing harmful content, things that have real world implications that hurt consumers, rather than just, you know, the political speech of ordinary Americans. It seems as though people from the left, people from the right, both sides want Section 230 changed in some ways. And I guess maybe the motivations or the reasons for that might be different depending on which side of the aisle that you're on. From where you stand, what needs to change about Section 230? Does it need to be eliminated entirely or can it be tweaked in some way? So I think the uh, the obvious thing here is that Section 230 needs to basically get rid of their broad immunity for uh, political censorship. What we're seeing right now with all across the social media landscape, the digital landscape, are these companies using Section 230 to essentially shield themselves from censoring conservative points of view. This happens has happened since you know the 2020 election cycle, and it's only getting worse. Uh, but, you know, in the broader context, I think what we saw today is that there's a need for uh, a, a new bill, something that actually gives more clear guidelines for content moderation policies. You have Supreme Court justices arguing whether or not this bill, this law written in 1996 covers AI, whether it covers uh, these kind of user generated algorithms that, you know, there was no even uh, notion that this would exist uh, when they wrote that bill. So. Uh, I think what we need now is to modernize our tech policy and to kind of look into the future of what's coming and address it before we get into this position again. And I think it's fair to note that this is just the first case regarding Internet law that we're likely to see. There's another one this week uh, regarding Twitter, but in October, a couple of cases that are going to focus on social media companies and their right to restrict content on their platforms. And so uh, certainly this this subject is not going anywhere. Jake, thank you so much for taking some time. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Well, that was our main thing. And that brings us to our one last thing. There are so many things on this podcast, you know, the, the main <laughs> thing and the one last thing. Don't get confused. The one last thing is the the Bible thought or the Bible verse. And we're actually going to look at Philippians 1, six. It says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And just what a comfort that is, right, to know uh, that we're going to go through trials and difficulties and there's going to be a lot of good along the way, too. But in the midst of that uncertainty, if we're in Christ, we can know how the story ends, right? We can know that we can have the confidence and assurance of our salvation. 
Yeah, and that's where and that's where true trust comes in. And we see that in the stories today that have unfolded and placing our trust not only in what we want, but that the ending, and we've talked about this on the show, the ending might not be what we wanted, but trusting God and his will, um, that brings us a lot of peace no matter what happens in life. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's such, such an encouragement, I think, uh, to trust, right? It's difficult at times, but to know that there's always that trust in the Lord and in, and in his care for us uh, is is can bolster us in the midst of difficult stuff. Absolutely. He knows what's best for us, even when we don't, and even when what we get isn't what we would have wanted. And that is that is a life lesson that we cannot be reminded of enough. And that brings us to the end of our time today on the show. If you want a Christian perspective to the news, make sure you subscribe to the Quick Start Podcast. Again, leave a rating. You can email us at quickstartpodcast at cbn.org. Uh, Again, don't forget to subscribe as well to the CBN Quick Start email newsletter. Lord willing and the creek don't rise. We'll see you back here next week.